our kids still remember the day we visited. There was dancing, drama, and singing. There were video games, themed play parks, and an indoor aquarium and reptile display. They even came away with branded water bottles. I just read to you a quote from Justin Brearley. After visiting, can anyone guess where he visited? Not Disney World. He said these words after visiting a worship service, a church, one of the largest in our country. Justin is from the UK. He took his family across the pond to visit six of the most popular megachurches in the U.S. He embarked on this journey not as a theologian or a historian, but simply as a watcher, watching worship. He wrote an article after his trip detailing what it was like to sit and watch worship in a megachurch. Justin took his family around the United States and I would like to do the same this morning with my family, my spiritual family, with you. I want us to sit in different corporate gatherings and watch worship take place. Just for a moment, I don't want you to be a participant, but a watcher of worship. Go with me as we travel across the states and drop in on worship services. These are all real churches with real worship services. None of these are made up. All of these events happened. First stop, Ohio. We are sitting in the auditorium of Solid Rock Church, but it looks like a rodeo arena. The crowd is huge. Apparently, the pastor, a normal guy, is about to do something normal guys don't do. He's going to ride a bull, a professional rodeo bull. The community attended the service in groves. They are nervous and tense because it's, it's like a train wreck you, you can't help but watch. He may die. We may witness it. But we can't turn away. The pastor is desperate to get people in the doors of his church. And he's done it. Second stop, Texas. We're sitting in the auditorium of Grapevine Church. And the pastor announces he's preaching a sermon series on marriage. He entitled the series, Sex Experiment. In order to create excitement, he pledged to spend 24 hours on the roof of his church with his wife. On the roof, there will be nightstands and lamps and even a bed. Reporters and TV crews will be there to interview them. This little charade garnered quite a bit of attention and people flocked to the church. They sold thousands of books from this little experience. Third stop, Kentucky. We just have to travel about an hour and a half down the road to a city called Paducah. We're sitting there with 1,300 other people and we're watching a worship service. Suddenly we notice something unusual. There's lots of guns around. Come to find out they're giving away guns as door prizes. <laughs> The evangelism leader of the Kentucky Baptist Convention is preaching the event. Uh, the same thing happened in Troy, New York, and they were giving away AR-15s. Now, some SBC leadership justified the meeting by calling it affinity evangelism. Find out what people like in a certain area and dangle that in front of them. And once they arrive, do the bait and switch with the gospel. Now, there are cheesy ways to do this with food or face painting or giving away free ferrets. But it's all the same in the end, isn't it? <laughs> we know what the motive is. It's sincere. They want to attract non-Christians to the church. 
And these non-Christians have no desire to worship. So they must hook them with something besides true worship. So the Church of the Living God starts offering aerobics classes, community movie night, accept Jesus as your Savior and receive a free cell phone. Program after program after program. And honestly, it just comes across as desperate. The church begging the world to validate them, to like them. We have pastors ziplining into the church. We have Christmas musicals entitled, Oh Little Clown of Bethlehem. Invite your neighbors and take a picture with the clown after the service. There are racy billboards that I can't even repeat. Churches become gimmicky. Friends, faith comes by hearing, not gimmickry. Gimmickry will never open the eyes of the blind. Gimmickry will never remove the distrust of the church that Satan has draped over the minds of the lost. The church must never sell its soul to consumerism, pandering after the world to praise them. The church, in my opinion, is beginning to approach worship like it's a product that they are selling and the attendees are the consumers. The church has to make the product look attractive, look glittery. That's not what the scripture says. We adorn the doctrine with holy living, not showmanship. The gospel doesn't need your help to convert the lost. When the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the lost, they will not only see the gospel as beautiful, but they will be willing to die for this gospel. Now the gimmicks pack the church. I've given you extreme examples, but we're all familiar with the not-so-extravagant examples around us. Like, we serve the best local coffee. This Sunday, we're going to have our largest attendance Sunday. Or back in the day, Pack-a-Pew Sunday. And I can't say that I haven't fallen prey to some of that early on in my ministry. Samuel Kirtong Pippin said, "We We have had gospel rock. Praise dancing and worship service, gospel puppets, gospel clowns, gospel cafes, gospel dramas. In other words, we proudly use gospel gimmicks. Friends, if your gospel needs a gimmick, it is no longer the gospel. Don't you dare cheapen what our Savior endured on the cross. You can't dress up a bloody cross. You can't make attractive a wrathful God to non-converted people. Don't chase after extravagant means. God has already given us the means. The ordinary means of preaching the word of God. Those of you who are non-Christians, and some of you are, you see these gimmicks and you laugh. And and really you try to help your, your Christian friend And and you try to put it in different scenarios and you say to them, look, giving away a free Starbucks gift card would never make me convert to Muhammad. So why is your church thinking it's going to make me convert to Christ? Let's make a quick fourth stop. Let's go across the pond and see what the UK is doing. 
Let's sit in Norwich Cathedral in the east of England. They have erected a 55-foot slide for adults and children. They explain to you as you're sitting watching worship that the height of the slide will help people see the beauty of the ornate ceilings in the ancient cathedral and it will cause them to praise God. And they say that it isn't cheap marketing tricks. It's a decision made out of sincere pastoral concern. You can stop by another cathedral down the street to watch the pastor say that the new putt-putt golf course will reach local families and open their hearts to the gospel. Turns out all you need to open the eyes of the blind is some artificial turf and a colorful ball. How are the Anglican churches in England dealing with the rapid decline in attendance? Well, they're scrambling for answers and they're trying everything as we see, but the obvious, the systematic preaching of God's word. Their buildings are immaculate, every square inch is incredibly clean, but the worship is sloppy. Today's text in Ecclesiastes is a unique section in the entire book. It focuses on careless, reckless, sloppy worship. It's a warning that worship will not take place when you treat God's presence with casual disregard. Zach Eswan calls these seven verses, Church Under the Sun. We have a new watcher in our text. It's not Justin from the UK or you in Texas. It's Solomon in ancient Jerusalem, and he's sitting on his front porch. Solomon knows how to approach God. He's an expert on the subject. He built the temple where people are worshiping. A sacred, beautiful building that would make any cathedral look like an outhouse. Solomon built his house right next door to the temple. One scholar even said that he had a secret pathway to the temple. It was merely a stone's throw away and he could sit in his rocking chair and watch worship take place. He watched people approach the temple after a long pilgrimage. He saw them in their nice dress robes. He watched them bring their sacrifices. Little lambs and birds. He watched their attitudes and and he listened. He listened to their prayers. FFC, we have a lot to learn from this text. If we aren't going to do sloppy worship, gimmicky worship. We find three timeless worship principles in the text. And then I will close with two timely worship applications from the text. The first timeless worship principle is this. Approach God with reverence and awe, not thoughtless festivity. I want you to notice verse 1a and then verse 7b. Verse 1a, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. In other words, enter into the presence of God thoughtfully, reverently, respectfully. Be appropriate when you enter His presence. Now, 7b, God is the one you must fear. And you say, that's Old Testament, Kyle. Fear is not merely an Old Testament concept. It's in the New Testament. Luke 22, 1 Peter 2, Matthew 10, and Ephesians 5. This is reverential fear. The two imperatives, guard in verse 1, fear in verse 7, bookend this section. 
They are demonstrating that worship must be reverent. We are to stand in awe of God. This passage refers to God six times, which is remarkable because the book doesn't even mention God that much outside of these verses. Now, those of you that have been following with us through this verse-by-verse study in Ecclesiastes, you might think that this is an abrupt shift in the book, but it's not. Solomon has been talking about worship the entire book. Life separated from worshiping God? Meaningless. Work separated from worshiping God? Meaningless. Relationships separated from worshiping God? Meaningless. Solomon has been complaining for four chapters, and it doesn't change in chapter 5. He's still complaining, but this time about ancient worship. Which is why I wanted to open our text up today by complaining about modern worship. You must realize there is a vast distinction between you and God. Solomon puts it like this in verse 2, For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Theologians call this the creature-creator distinction. Creature-creator distinction. And it's missing in the planning of many modern worship services. Gregory of Nyssa said, Knowing how widely the divine nature differs from our own, let us quietly remain within our proper limits. We are mere earthlings. He is not. He is other. We are same. Grab hold of the otherness of God. He is completely transcendent. He is above. We are below. He is completely separate. When Moses met with God at the burning bush, he was commanded to guard his steps. Take off his shoes, for he is on holy ground. Think about who you're coming before. God didn't need a temple. You did. You desperately need to stand before this God in awe. This is why your soul was created. Worship isn't about you. It's not about your preferences. And it's not about the feeling that it gives you. Well, I can only worship if there's a choir. I can only worship if there's hymn books. Well, I don't even know your definition of worship. Or the other spectrum. Well, Kyle, I'm used to worship services being geared toward non-Christians. Well, the Bible isn't. Worship isn't about you. Worship isn't about your happiness. Victoria Osteen said to her church in Texas, and I quote, uh, take this down, this will be the only time in all of eternity I ever quote an Osteen. But (laughs) Victoria Osteen said, and I quote, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. And that's the thing that gives Him the greatest joy. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself. Because that's what makes God happy. Amen. And the congregation applauds. And Kyle pukes. (laughs) It's hard for our culture to understand reverence. We don't revere authority. We don't revere parents, government, police officers. 
These seven verses were written to help us take a more reverential approach in worship. We don't have to fill every second with noise. There needs to be moments of silent awe before our holy God. Worship is about you ascribing the glory that already belongs to God to God. Guard your feet. That could be translated. Watch your step in worship. When the world is going casual, we need to be watching our step before this holy God. Timeless principle, timeless worship principle number two. Bring your ears, hands, and heart to God. Not your meaningless religious activity. Solomon is a sniper in this section. I mean, scoping us out from his front porch. Verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. These are people worshiping. And Solomon says they're worshiping but they're doing evil. Now, the temple. The temple was like an ancient church, butcher shop, and restaurant combined. An ancient church, butcher shop, and restaurant combined. God gave certain requirements for each offering. Rules that needed to be followed. Maybe you remember reading about these rules in Leviticus and Numbers. You know, where your your Bible reading plans go to die. Uh, Solomon doesn't use the word worship even though he's talking about worship. He uses the word sacrifice because it pictures bringing something to God. The Hebrew word behind this kind of sacrifice is zabak. This is where they would kill an animal and sacrifice and then use the animal for a meal. This was not a burnt offering where it was charred and completely consumed. One German theologian said that Zabak would sometimes degenerate into thoughtless festivity and sometimes far worse. It's important for you to know that Solomon is not attacking the sacrificial system itself, but its misuse. In other words, not the use, but the abuse. And and here's what Solomon was viewing from his front porch as he's watching worship. He saw earless people walking, handless people coming to bring an offering. They they had an offering, but they didn't have ears or hands with them. God says to draw near to listen. And there's a double force behind the word listen. It means to hear with your ears and then obey with your hands. Hear with your ears and then obey with your hands. It refers to hearing and heeding. Notice that Solomon continues in verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Stephen Davey points out here that Solomon is describing a fool who comes into the presence of God but is not ready to listen to God. He's ready to lecture God. But the true worshiper comes into the house of worship ready to listen. Now, what should these ancient worshipers have been listening to? Well, they would have walked into the temple and the priest would have began explaining the meaning of the sacrifices. Uh, This is why we do this. 
Uh, this is what this points to. This is, this is what it teaches us about our holy God. They were listening. The scriptures would have been read and they were to listen. Then they would have been told their responsibilities as a worshiper and they were to listen. Solomon says in verse 3, For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse like this. Overwork makes for restless sleep. Overtalk shows you up as a fool. Their flood of words showed that they came to teach, not be taught. They came to be heard, not to hear God's word. Now, I've got, a, I've got a couple applications at the end, but I want to give you some applications here in the middle. A couple practical applications. One, when you go to worship God, come to listen. When you come to worship God, come to listen. The ear is a discipleship organ. Listening is a spiritual discipline. Solomon is echoing what Moses preached in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, enter to learn. Don't be like, like these people who thought they knew all the answers, therefore they should be the ones talking. Be an undivided worshiper. When did revival come in Nehemiah 8? When the people listened to the word of God. Be devoted to coming to church and hearing the preached word of God. Uh, get here in enough time and put the kids in, in the classes. Sit down. Pray that God would speak to you. Use a pen. If God speaks to you, write it down. Have you ever had those Sundays where you were like, wow, God really spoke to me? Well, I suspect He wants to do that every Sunday. Are we listening? When you come to worship, come to listen. Secondly, when you come to worship, come to obey. You can't just hear the Word of God and be good. You must hear the Word of God and obey it. Well, Kyle, I'll obey parts of it. You need to obey all of it, not just the parts you like. Gibson said Ecclesiastes is one long meditation on the need to use our ears for God's Word and our hands in God's world. When you come to worship, come to listen. When you come to worship, come to obey. Thirdly, when you pray to God, when you pray to God, speak from the heart. Sincerity is vital in worship. I don't want you to read the words, therefore let your words be few, and think that Solomon is speaking about the actual number of the words you pray. The number of words is not the issue. The heart behind the words is the issue. Someone has said that when we pray, we tend to think that, that, that we're talking in a spiritual microphone with, with God on the other end and He's listening with, with earbuds. But in fact, when we pray, God is listening by using a spiritual stethoscope. Just like the doctor who says, I can hear your heart. He hears words. From the heart. What did, what did Jesus tell us in Matthew 6, 7? And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. At this time in the life of the Jews, many prayers were formalized, instituted. 
And whenever you say something over and over again, it's really easy just to say the words but have no heart behind it. A liturgy is fine, but dead liturgy is horrible. Sing some songs over and over again and they'll lose meaning to you. Pray the same written prayers over and over again and they can no longer express your heart. This is one of the reasons why we will not say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, forever. Because it will lose meaning after a while. One pastor said, formality can work its way into your life no matter how non-denominational you think you are. (laughs) Some people pray in the King James language and think that it's got some power to it. I thank thee that thou art a holy God and that thou hearest me. Well, that's fine if that helps you show reverence. But don't think that the thees and thous and wilts and worts can change the heart. Now, of course, the opposite of this is praying in the most casual language and talking to God saying, Daddy, or talking to God like he's a, a homeboy. Yo, JC. Every time I hear either one of those scenarios, I want to slap the preacher that taught that nonsense. All right, here's what we know from Solomon watching on his front porch. These people were not bringing their ears, their hands, or their hearts. But they were bringing their meaningless religious activity. They thought their continued religious activity would be enough. And Solomon calls them fools three times. Gradanus says these fools believe that their sacrifice will automatically cancel out their sin without the need to repent. Ananias and Sapphira gave an offering in Acts 5. And it made God angry. It repulsed him. It made him vomit. In the temple, their gifts brought a smile. Wow! But to God, it made him plug his nose. Remember when Cain and Abel brought their sacrifice to God in Genesis 4? Possibly the first record of sacrifices outside of the garden. God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's offering. The bottom line was Cain was trying to cover up his sinful ways by his offering. And a lot of people in churches still try to do that. God isn't into pageantry. He cares about the heart. That's true of individual worship and it's also true of corporate worship. God wants your ears, your hands, and your heart above your sacrifice. What did Solomon's father say? David He said in Psalm 51, 16, God, you will not delight in sacrifices, or would I give it? You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, that you will not despise. Samuel told Saul, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. Christian, I want to ask you a question. And I can ask it, but only God can make it you know, penetrate your heart. But here's the question. Do you find yourself mechanical and outward in your worship? Are you in a rut of religious ritual? You're giving empty sacrifice after empty sacrifice, just going through the motions, but you've lost all the heart behind it. Have you done a religious activity this morning with your heart not in it? Singing. 
Quoting, thanks be to God. Listening to God's word. Do you feel cold? Do you feel distant? Let me flip it. Let me talk to those of you for a moment that are non-Christians. You're not a Christian. Please hear me. Your religious rituals will not gain you favor with God. Your actions are actually further angering God. You're heaping coals on your head. Well, God must love my singing because Nashville does. God hates your singing because there's no converted heart behind it. It's covering up a sin-loving soul. Worship principle number three. Worship isn't about you bringing your promises to God. Rather, it's about, I feel like I'm hearing the voice of God here, but it's, it's not, it's fine. Rather, it's about resting in his promises to you. Worship isn't about you bringing your promises to God. Rather, it's about resting in his promises to you. Verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. In other words, if you vow it, then do it. God does not take broken vows lightly. Making vows is, is probably not a spiritual discipline that many of you are familiar with. But it was common in the Bible. Vows were pledges worshipers made to God. Vows played a prominent role in the lives of Israel's men and women. You may remember Jonah making a vow in the belly of a fish. Baron Hannah making a vow and said, God, if you just give me a child, I will make him a Nazarite. I will dedicate him to the Lord. And then Hannah fulfilled her vow as soon as she could after she had weaned little Samuel. In the Old Testament... You might make a vow if you're a soldier under attack and about to die. God, if you rescue me, I will blank. Or you might make a vow in the Old Testament if you're innocent and accused of evil. God, if you vindicate me, I will blank. Would you, would you write this reference down? You don't have to turn to it. I'll read it. But Deuteronomy 12.11. Deuteronomy 12.11. God says, You shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. See how common these vows were? And they're different than sacrifices and offerings. I'll read to you a war vow that's in the scriptures. A war vow. Numbers 21, 2. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed... Give us this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. They kept the vow. Asaph actually encouraged vows in Psalm 76, 11. He said, make your vows to the Lord, your God, and perform them. But notice what Solomon says in our text in verse 5. He says, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Now, these exact same words have been said before. This is actually a, a, a repeat of Deuteronomy 23, 21. If, where God says, if you make a, a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. 
You shall be careful. I love this. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And Solomon echoes it in verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. But there's, there's a hard part here. There's a hard part in the middle of verse 6. Uh, took me a lot to just study it out. Notice the middle of verse 6. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. So you got these people making vows. And then later on they're saying, oh, it, it was a mistake. Now what's happening here? And who are they telling that it was a mistake, this messenger? Well, scholars believe that in this day there were temple employees whose job was to check up on those who made public vows to make sure that they fulfilled them. Like a vow bounty hunter or a religious bill collector. We don't have any biblical evidence for this office. But historians say that the messenger in verse 6 is one of these guys so let's take a step back for a moment. Solomon is watching worship on his front porch and he's hearing all these vows and he knows these people will not keep them. And they will make excuses. Why? Later. And let's bring this to the 21st century. Don't make promises to God and not keep them. Don't commit yourself to some kind of action and fail to follow through. Well, if God will do this, then I will do this. If God heals me of my disease, I will start volunteering. If God rescues me from my financial crisis, I will start tithing. And others, I've just seen it before, don't come to God with wild promises and unguarded commitments. If this pregnancy test is negative, I will read the book of Deuteronomy every morning before work. <laughs> don't be a crisis promiser. God, if you give me a spouse, I'll take her to the Middle East and be a missionary. How easy it is to vow. How hard it is to pay. In our congregational singing this morning, you and I have or will have sung 11 promises to God. We promised the Lord as we sang that we would walk by faith and not by sight. That we would stand as children of the promise. That we would not boast in anything. Not our gifts, not our power, not our wisdom. We promise that we would only boast in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Now, a little side note here. Vows, like we have here in the text, are never commanded in the Bible. Nor do we find them ever forbidden. Some scholars think they were probably optional. Did Jesus ever speak about vows? Why, yes, he did. Matthew chapter 5, verse 34, he said, But I say unto you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right, let's put it in today's vernacular. Jesus said, don't swear on your mama's grave or say no word of a lie. You don't have to resort, resort to that or resort to vows. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Now, verse 7 
is complicated. And I'm, and I'm, running, low, I'm running low on time because I still got to get to do Christ-centered applications. But here's the gist of it. These dreams, in verse 7, appear to be daydreams. While the priest was explaining the meaning of the sacrificial routine, these people were mentally daydreaming. Mentally daydreaming during worship. (laughs) D.A. Carson made this application to us. He said, corporate worship is not a time for daydreaming or a retreat for mental scribbling. This is the worship of a fool. And this is why I opened up the sermon like I opened it up. Because I know what you're saying. Like, Kyle, we, we would never put a putt-putt course in the auditorium. We would never put a 55-foot slide there. We would never have a rodeo arena in the church. Well, good. But there's more than one way to do sloppy worship. Daydreaming is another. Two timely applications. The first application is this. Christ has a word about the temple worship. Christ has a word about the temple worship. Scholars say that there are 50 big themes that begin in Genesis Exodus and then develop throughout the Bible. The temple is one of them. It occurs 328 times. And I want to show you this overarching history of the temple. There are actually five temples in the Bible. The first one is what we call the tabernacle. You may remember the two million newly escaped ragtag slaves were commanded to stop, set up their tents, and camp out. They were running from Egypt. And God wanted his people to know that as they're traveling through life, he is with them. And what's the best way to do that? I'll set my tent right in the middle of your tents. God is moving into their neighborhood. I'm coming to you. He is the with us God. If we have any engineers here or construction workers, you you may read the tabernacle account and think, I could build that. I could buy all those materials at Lowe's, and and you could. It was a little more than 10,000 square feet, the size of four tennis courts, designed to be set up, taken down, and moved. It was a portable structure. That was the first temple. We call it the tabernacle. Now, eventually, the tabernacle was replaced with the temple. The portable structure became a permanent structure, When Solomon built it. It was built and destroyed twice. But this is what Solomon is looking at from his front porch. And and the first temple, the tabernacle, and the second temple, the, the temple, pointed to a greater reality. The true temple, like the tabernacle, there there will be another portable presence of God as Jesus takes on flesh. The third temple was Jesus. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about his body. The fullness of God now dwells in a new and better sanctuary. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The same word, tabernacled among us. He put his tent in the middle of our tents when Jesus came to be robed in flesh. You do realize that Christ changed how we approach God, right? Jesus brought a major change to the animal sacrificial system. They're no longer needed. I'm the sacrifice, he says. Gradanus says that within 40 years of Jesus' death, the temple was destroyed and the practice of sacrificing animals at the temple was unheard of. It didn't happen. 
Why? Because he is the sacrifice. We don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem's broken down temple to experience the presence of God. We have access to God all the time through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, modern buildings, they aren't holy. Let me just give you this. The, the, fourth, the fourth one is the human temple. We, we are, instead of us, you are the temple of God. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit abiding in you. You have the presence of God in you. It's no longer in a building. It is in you. You are the temple of God. Modern buildings aren't holy, but they aren't evil either. Alistair Begg said, Nothing is special about our buildings except that God's people are there. You take away this building. You, you, you take away God's people. I have no use for the building. It's just where God's people meet. God's presence is no longer in, in a building. So you've got the tabernacle, you've got the temple, you've got Jesus, you've got uh, the human temple, and then you've got a future temple. You read about that in the book of Revelation. This future temple um, where there will be no sloppy worship. Application number two. Number one, Christ has a word about the temple worship. Number two, Christ has a word about sloppy worship. This is the last thing I'm going to give you, but I, I, want you to, I want you to grab hold of this because it's important. Did Jesus ever see the madness that we are seeing today in churches? Well, not exactly. He didn't see light shows and giveaways, but that doesn't mean he didn't see sloppy worship. In Mark 11, you can read it tonight for homework. In Mark 11, Jesus entered this rebuilt temple of Solomon. Now, this was not actually Solomon's temple. That The temple that Solomon built was destroyed by the Babylonians, but then a new one was built, began during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, completed during the days of Herod. But it was in this newly rebuilt temple of Solomon. Jesus entered that temple and he did something wild. He just watched. There's like half a verse that tells this in the scriptures. He went into the temple and the text says he just watched. Nothing escaped his glare while watching worship. He saw beyond the actions into the hearts of the people. We don't know how long Jesus watched worship. Maybe it was 15 minutes, maybe it was 55 minutes. We're uncertain, but we're very certain that he leaves disturbed. He did not like what he saw. It was sloppy. It was irreverent. Things were going on under the name of worship that was not worthy of the name. And the text says that Jesus retires back to Bethany. He walks in, spends time watching, walks away. He retires back to Bethany, likely to lodge with Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus. The next day, Jesus makes the two-mile trek back to the temple, and he enters again. This time, not as a watcher of worship, but as an owner of worship. What followed? He overturned tables and pulled out a whip and drove that irreverence, that festivity, that gimmickry, out of the presence of God. True worship is important to Jesus. How do I know that? Because he died to make it possible.
Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.